Today, uh, we're going to conclude our series by talking about our final character, and that final character is the father, the, the father of the two sons, right? So, as I've said, for the past two weeks, we've been examining uh, the, the, the two sons and the characteristics of, of the younger and the older, and a lot of us, as we read this story and as we study more about uh, the two sons, a lot of us can easily relate to the younger son. Um, I do it all the time. I'm sure many of us, as we've heard messages or stories about this parable, a lot of us point to the younger son and say, that's me. That's, I, can, I get that, right? You know, the rebellious nature of who he was, the shame that we carry and the shame that we bring to our father in heaven. It's easy for us to relate. And I think one of the main reasons why is because a lot of us in this world that we live in have some kind of fallout with God. Uh, a lot of us have this falling away in terms of our spiritual sense, our spiritual lives and our health. We, we don't reach the level that we're at. We have these spiritual highs and then we run into these spiritual lows. And so I think it's very easy for us to relate and rightfully so. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, now, obviously, I don't want to say that everyone has had a falling out. Maybe you feel like you haven't and maybe that hasn't happened yet. And I'm not trying to promote this ideal that uh, you know, we all have to have a fallout or anything like that. I'm not saying that whatsoever. Um, but a majority of us can agree that at some point in our spiritual walk, if we choose to live a life for Jesus, that it's not always going to be, you know, green pastures and still waters, but there are always going to be the struggles and, and the challenges and the wrestling that we face with God. Um, but ultimately, we can all relate to the younger son. Uh, and it's beautiful because despite the younger son's rebellion, despite the younger son's falling away from the Lord or from the father, uh, the father in the parable still is able to receive the younger son. And just rightfully so, God still is able to receive us despite our rebellion. And then last week, you know, obviously as we examine the life of the older son and the characteristics that he exhibit, I shared with you kind of the harder reality that Actually, we are all more like the older son than the younger son. And that we all are um, so much more uh, uh, like the older son, whether we realize it or not. And it takes a lot more time, uh, especially to acknowledge and accept this. Because especially when we're pointing to things that, you know, things that we feel make us righteous, the self-righteousness. It's not easy to, to pull that apart and break it apart. Some of us may look at it and be like, no way, I'm, I'm not the older son. Like, look how good I am, right? And then you catch yourself and you think, oh, Pastor Tim is right. I am the older son because I think that way, right? Um, but today what we're going to be doing um, is that we're going to be going into probably one of the most challenging, uh, yet one of the most life-changing, transforming things to understand in our walk with God. And clearly, obviously, we're talking about the father today. So this is something that's going to be kind of hard to wrap our minds around. But hopefully by the end of today, I can help you kind of wrap um, our minds around it and really just allow it to transform and, and change our lives. But specifically, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to come to an understanding. We're going to try to come and understand how the father is, pursues both the younger son the one that wishes his father was dead and brings the shame and, and, and dishonor to the family, 
but how also God pursues the older brother, the older son, who disrespects the father and also does not want him either. Right? We see something very interesting and very peculiar to the father in our parable of how despite the rebellion, the forms of rebellion from both the younger and the older son, how in the world is the father able to receive both? You see, last week I shared with you that the, the parable ends on a cliffhanger and Jesus is speaking to the hearts of the Pharisees and asking for them to respond. Um, and and, and as, as it ends on this sour note of the older brother and we don't know what happens after the invitation of the father, Jesus was extending that invitation also to the Pharisees saying, hey, it's not too late. Like, despite your rebellion, come and join in on this celebration of the gospel message, right? And that's an incredible love, and that's an incredible uh, 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 sign of grace from our Father. But basically, as we're the third person looking at this story, the challenge is this. How can we come to an understanding that God can pursue both the younger son that's within us and also extend and reach out to the older son that's in us? And you may think like, okay, pastor, like that seems like a very simple question to ask the question, well, how does God reach out to both the younger and the older son? Well, God loves us, right? And we think that's the straightforward, simple answer. But really, do we really believe that when we say that? Do we really take it to heart when we say, yeah, God loves me. God loves the, the sinner down the street. So of course, it's easy for God to, to do that, right? But how, how do we, do we really believe that? Does that belief reflect in our character? Does that belief reflect in our actions, in our thoughts? That's the challenge. And as I've shared with you before about this ideal of belief, in biblical times, belief was not something that we just think in our heads, but it manifests and becomes a part of every little part of your life. So do we really believe that the father is able to love and pursue both the younger and the older son because he truly does love us. Can we believe that? You see, we're going to talk about a few different characteristics of the father. We're going to break down the character of the father to kind of help put things in perspective. And by the end of today's sermon, I hope we can see a clear picture of who the father is and what that means to us today. Because you see, when we understand the true character of the father, we can understand how and what it means to go back to the Father. You see, by understanding the Father, we can find our way back home. Now, I'm going to look at the, the Father, uh, very interestingly, in a similar light to that of the younger son. And as we looked at the younger son, uh, we looked at this ideal and this concept of shame. And so I actually want to do the same thing when it comes to the father. Um, and we're going to be looking at it as it unfolds into three shameful stages. The first being a shameful reception. The second being a shameless reconciliation. And the third, a shameless rejoicing. To begin, let's go ahead and read our scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 20 to 21. Luke chapter 15, verse 20 to 21 says this. And he arose and came to the father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
So first of all, let's kind of recall the story up until now. Obviously, I don't want to take the time to read the entire story. If you have yet to read the whole thing, we've read it in the past two weeks, the entirety of the story. But read through it once again if you have the chance this Sabbath. But to recall what's happening, uh, the younger son wishes his father dead. Uh, the father doesn't retaliate, doesn't question it, simply gives him... Uh, his share of the inheritance, which was about probably one-third. And then the younger son goes off to a distant land, squanders all the money that uh, he has, and then he ends up in the pig pens with the pin, with the pigs. Um, and he comes to this daunting realization that just kind of falls upon him that he has absolutely nothing. When the people that he was hanging out with, the people that he was partying with and squandering his wealth, he had nothing, right? After they all left, he was sitting in the pig pen of life. But now as he's sitting there, looking at the food that the pigs are eating, the pods, he comes to this hopeful realization that, that, that he could maybe go back. And he's reminiscing and kind of looking back and reflecting on the things that he used to have. Thinking about the good old days when he was back home with the father. And, and he has this hope because... Quite frankly speaking, he had absolutely nothing. He had nothing to look at. He had nothing to reflect upon but what he used to have with the Father. Now, this is where we begin looking at the first of the three shameful stages of the Father. The first one, a shameful reception. You see, the younger son very clearly had an understanding of his father, but very clearly didn't have a clear picture of who his father was because he had a very low expectation of what the father was able to do for him. Okay? I, I think very clearly uh, his, his thought process as he's working this out in his head, you know, he's thinking, well, you know, I've messed up, so I'll go back to the father. I'll you know, work my way back to becoming a son. Right. Um, and really, the only thing that he wanted to be was a hired servant. He wasn't asking for more. He was asking for the bare minimum because he understood. He understood the time. He understood the culture. He understood his place. Right. And, and clearly, you know, you look at the historical context, his response, if the Pharisees were listening, would have been like, very good. Right. He can come back, but he shouldn't expect anything. Just expect to be a hired servant if the father chooses to bring him back in, right? Um, so the younger son clearly understood his mistakes, very clearly understood that in order for him to work back into his family or to be a part of his family again, he had to work his way to that position, right? It wasn't going to be given to him on a golden platter, and he very well knew this. Okay? He was not expecting an immediate welcome home party uh, as a son. You see, his empty lifestyle that kind of left him sitting in the pig pen have filled him with this remorse for the things of the past, with the pain that he had to deal with in his present, right? And a very bleak and empty future filled with the suffering that he would have to experience because he would have to work his way back into the Father's acceptance. But we see here that Jesus paints this very, very bizarre and beautiful plot twist, and no one is ready for this. You see, the celebration, the unexpected reception of this younger son begins even before the younger son gets home for the party. Right? The second part of verse 20 says that when he was still a great way off, okay, 
when we look at this, I can already tell you right now that it's going to be a beautiful story. Okay? Why? Because Jesus here is describing that the Father is this patient, waiting person. Okay? This language that's being used by Jesus here indicates the Father was there watching. The Father was there waiting. The Father was there, there suffering silently, hoping that this once shameful son would soon return. Remember we talked about um, in the weeks prior about the father's estate and, and how the older brother or the older son didn't even know that a party was going on when the, the son returned. And, and we talked about the, how large this, this field and this estate actually was. So you can imagine, right, that this is a land of huge proportions with lots of wealth. And so, as the father is patiently waiting for this younger son, the father recognizes the younger son in a far great distance. He recognized that the son was coming back. This shows the intention of the father. This shows how intentional he was in seeking and pursuing his younger son. The fact that he was waiting to see someone coming off in the far distance was not something that would have happened if he was just working in the field, if he was minding his own business, if he was trying to cook lunch, right? Those are things you wouldn't notice something coming from miles and miles out. But the Father, the Father here in this parable, Jesus paints a picture of the Father patiently waiting and noticing the Son coming back in the distance. Now get this. Remember in this culture, in this time and place, it's all about this, this honor and shame and respect, right? This is what the culture is founded upon. And we clearly show uh, or see that the younger son showed the father shame, right? Very clear in the story, Jesus paints a picture of this younger son that brought shame to the father and brought no respect to him. But we also have to realize that even the father received shame because he wasn't acting the way that the, a father should have responded, right? So Jesus paints this picture of a son that was shameful, but Jesus is also painting a picture of a father who is shameful as well. Because you see, when the younger son asked the father or wished him dead, basically, by asking for the inheritance, okay, the Pharisees would have been thinking, well, the father's correct response would be, no way, I'm not giving you the inheritance. You don't deserve the inheritance. Slap him in the face and disown him would have been the right thing for the father to do. But Jesus paints a picture of a father who simply gives without question to the younger son that has brought shame to him. So in essence, the father was also shameful. The people in the, this, this parable's community would have seen what the father had done and would have also shamed him for his actions. So imagine with me. As the father is sitting there, waiting patiently, looking out on the outskirts of his, his, his very large property, as people are going about doing their business, right? they see this shameful father waiting for his shameful son. And, and you can imagine the gossip that's going around town. Man, what a shameful family. What a shameful group of people. The father doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. The son has gone off and squandered his livings, right? What good is this family, right? What, what good can come from this family? Now, you can see as the Pharisees are probably listening to the parable, I'm sure they would have been like, okay, 
Well, the father is wise, he is an older gentleman, so I'm sure he'll come to his senses, right? Yes, he is sitting there shamefully. Yes, he is sitting there waiting for his shameful son. But maybe he'll come to his senses. Maybe because of the, these like stares and the judgment that he's, he's receiving because of his, his prior actions and his re- response to the younger son, maybe now the father will do what is honorable. Maybe now the father will respond in the correct way. And if the son returns, maybe the father will now respond by rejecting the son, right? That would be the correct response. And this is probably what the Pharisees are thinking as they're imagining this story as Jesus is painting it. And, and they would have been thinking, well, if the, if the son wanted to come back and become a son, okay, the father might, you know, if the son came back, the father would be like, hey, you know, you're going to have to sit outside the property, uh, sit on the floor. You're going to have to beg. Uh, you're going to have to sit there for a few days and let people look at you and humiliate you, spit at you, taunt you, torment you, right? And, and put him in his right place. Humble him. Put him in his right place. Have him reflect even more, right? And, and after a few days, then maybe, you know, remember, this is a Pharisee's train of thought. Maybe the father will then accept him, but not as a son, but as a hired servant. And say, hey, you know, son, like I have this to-do list for you. Uh, before I can actually call you son, then make sure you finish all of these things, work your way, you know, maybe 10, 15 years or so, and then we'll reconsider and maybe we'll call you a son then, right? And, and biblical times, this was just how things were. And Pharisees would have thought that this was the proper way in going about uh, a rebellious, um, shameful son, um, and this is in, in the Pharisees' mind also just their way of imagining how repentance worked. Okay? That sinners could actually earn God's favor and God's forgiveness through their work. Now, Jesus uh, doesn't really follow the status quo. He paints a very different picture than what the Pharisees may have been expecting. Right? He shatters this cultural expectation because he says in the rest of verse 20, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, obviously, this is not something that happens at night. Right? If we think of the story, this is something that's happening in broad daylight. Right? In the middle of the day, uh, if it was at night, you know, there's no way he could have seen him that far out into the distance. Um, the sun is coming back. In the middle of the day, where everyone is awake, everyone is aware of what's going on, everyone sees what's happening. And, and this village would have been busy with commotion. People working in the fields, people you know, in the marketplace, people going to and fro. Uh, this is kind of the setting in which the younger son comes back. And the beautiful thing is, is that even before the son reaches the village, before the son even is able to step foot in town, The father runs out to the son. And this is so significant. This is so powerful. Follow me on this. Because the father's purpose of running out to the son was to protect him from shame, from the taunts, from the stares, from the possible abuse and the attacks of the people in his community for being such a terrible, disrespectful son. And and this is so mind-blowing. Because the father is not just waiting for the son to get to him. The father is actively pursuing his lost son. 
And we may think, okay, pastor, I've heard that before. Pastor, that's a great story. That's so cool. Like the father loves his son that he goes and protects him, right? But maybe that's not convincing for you. Uh, maybe you've heard this so many times that, of course, like that makes sense. Like, why, why will the father not go out to him, right? But let's look at the historical context and why this would have been such an, a shocking and extreme detail that Jesus adds to the story. You see, the eagerness the father has for his son is expressed in the fact that once the father saw the son in the greater distance and had compassion, that the father, keyword, ran, right? Now, uh, people of this time, especially the father in the parable, who was most likely a man of Middle Eastern descent uh, and probably uh, considered a nobleman, someone of status and high power, um, the thing is, uh, these kind of people, Middle Eastern noblemen, don't run. That's just the reality. Okay? Uh, and what's more interesting, Jesus uses a Greek word uh, that uh, is also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians. And it's called uh, treko. Right? There's a little bit of a role there. Treko. Uh, and it's describing uh, a run as in like running in a race. right? As Paul uses to describe that we're all running this race. Jesus using, is using that same Greek word. And in other words, uh, what we have to realize is this is not like a jog out. This is like a mad sprint, right? Jesus is describing this father as someone that is making a 100-yard dash, right? 100-meter, like, fastest man on earth sprint, okay? Jesus is painting a picture of a father that is running out to protect the son, but not just going out casually saying, like, hey, don't, don't hurt my son, right? He's running as if his life depended on it to go and save and protect the younger son. So picture this, okay? There is a man in this village with this status and this power and importance, and he's running in public, right? This would have been so unheard of. People of this status, of power, of nobleman status, would be wearing very long robes and long, long uh, articles of clothing. And I don't know about you, I've never done this, uh, but, you know, for you women out there, running in a dress that's long, imagine running in your wedding dress, okay? Like, dragging on the floor. The only way you can actually run is if you pull up the dress and expose your legs, right? You have to gather the robes. You have to gather your clothing and expose the legs. But in a culture that Jesus was living in, in the culture of that time, to expose your legs in public, oh my... That was one of the most shameful things you could do as somebody of status and power. This is the beautiful thing about the father. Hear me out. Okay. At the time that he runs to his son, the father becomes the object of shame by taking shame on himself to prevent shame of his son. How beautiful is that church? Right? But wait, it gets better, right? The Bible says that Jesus, or the Father, or Jesus describes the Father as falling on His neck, right? Or some translations will say the Father embraced the Son, okay? Which I think is uh, much easier to understand translation. But think about this, right? Why is this so beautiful? Yeah, like a brace and a hug, right, and a kiss. Yeah, okay, great. But but think about it this way: Where was the younger son before? 
he had come to the father. In the context of this parable, we find that the younger son was in the pig pens. He was sitting in the pig pens looking at the food that the pigs were eating. I don't know about you, uh, many years back when I went to go visit Korea, I went to Jeju-do, uh, Jeju Island. Um, you know, Jeju Island, uh, for a non-Adventist, obviously is kind of hard to relate. Uh, but in Jeju Island, one of the most well-known and popular things of the island are, yes, those, the, the, was it the oranges or the chocolates and the little stone statues. But they're also known for their uh, black pigs, right? Uh, and they're supposedly like really good and delicious. But I remember visiting one time in Korea and looking at the, the pig pens that they lived in. And it was the most wretched smell ever in my life, right? I could not imagine how disgusting and dirty the pig pen was. In, in this little village in Jeju Island, and um, you probably won't be hungry after hearing this, but they had set up like, I guess back in the days, and I could be wrong, please someone correct me. And, and culture me, uh, but they would set up their bathrooms above the pig pen. And uh, I'll leave the imagination uh, for you later uh, to think about. But this is where the son is, is coming from. He's spending his time in the pig pen because he has nothing, absolutely nothing. And I'm sure, you know, as he's coming back to, to, to home, he's not going to stop by and go to one of those, you know, uh, shower places, you know, rest stops. I'm sure they didn't have those. And even if they did, I'm sure he had no mo money and he had to deal with the shame of people judging him and staring at him. You see, in the son's filth, in the son's dirtiness, the father runs out, embraces him, and, and takes it a step further, even kisses this dirty son, right? You see, Jesus is literally making the Pharisees shake in their boots, right? They're completely blown away because through the Father's action, the Father is showing acceptance, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This son who has been exposed to all these unclean things, unclean lifestyle, yet this father of class and power is sacrificing his cleanliness to accept the son once again. Man. You see, the son did absolutely nothing but come back home. It is solely through the grace of the father that the process of reconciliation had been completed. If you remember correctly in verse 18 and 19, prior to what we read today, as the younger son is in the pig pen thinking of what to say, he says, well, I'll get up and go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But then we read in verse 21, we see a little bit of a different response, right? He says, Father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's it. That's all he says. Have you thought about why this is the case? Right? The son leaves out a very crucial statement. And it's very interesting. Okay? That very last statement, make me like one of your hired servants. Sure, we could think like, oh, maybe he got flustered. Maybe, you know, as he was walking, his mind wasn't very clear. and Maybe he forgot. Right? He said a few different words, so maybe he just has bad memory. Okay? But the reality is this. The son realizes, after seeing the response of the father, that there was no need for him anymore to work his way back to being a part of the family. Because the father, through his actions, 
has now received him back as his son. Now, I want to share with you guys a little bit of a testimony. Um, you know, when I was younger, especially when I was in high school, uh, I went through a very interesting phase where uh, I started off uh, going to a public high school after going to an Adventist Academy and homeschooling for one year uh, for grade or for elementary and junior high. And so going to high school was a very new adventure for me. Um, I was a very quiet, shy, timid kid. I didn't really know anyone. Most people from junior high had already gone to the same school. And then going to high school, you know, obviously they know each other. They're already friends. And so they already have their groups. But for me, coming out of just some random, small, Adventist academy and knowing no one at this new public high school, I remember uh, always wanting to try fitting in. And so obviously throughout my high school years, it kind of transitioned and where I had no friends at the beginning. And I started to open up to people and started to really create my own friend group throughout high school. Uh, one of the things that I was always frustrated about was that I never felt like I had the freedom to be me, right? I could never hang out with friends. I could never sleep over at their houses. I could never really do anything. My parents always would make us, you know, my, my, me and my siblings go to work, uh, help with the family business, and I hated it. Uh, I thought, like, it was just the worst thing ever happening to me. And so I would always argue and, and, and run away from home. And that was kind of the theme of my high school. Because I would always remember just running away, going to friends' houses, hanging out with friends, skipping school, and all of that uh, stuff. Uh, I'm not encouraging this kind of behavior. Uh, I regret it so much. Uh, but that's who I used to be. And I used to always run away. Um, and it was something that was very odd for me is after I would run away, I would simply just come back home without much thought. Uh, and, you know, my mother would ask if I ate and, you know, like, where have I been? And, you know, it was not necessarily the response that I always expected. But something that always baffled me was, huh, that's like kind of weird, you know, like, I, why, why do my parents do that? And so actually a few years ago when I was up here in California, I was thinking about that. I was, I was driving to church and I called my mom because I wanted to know like what was going on through her mind. Like, like how come like she never like stopped me? How come like, like even though like I was rebellious and argued and then ran away from home and did all these things, like how come my mom never stopped me? Because every time I would go back, like, it would just be like whatever you know like they would just be fine and so i asked my mom I said, mom like can you explain to me like why you never stopped me from running away and being a fool and making myself look very humiliated in public and doing all these things uh and she tells me this story um and i literally broke down because what what happened is is the reason why she never stopped me, she would let me kind of run away. Uh, I drove a very distinct car in high school. Uh, I drove a blue Mitsubishi Montero. So it looks like a Jeep. It kind of just like sticks up out of nowhere. Um, and it's a pretty distinct car. And honestly, like, you know, I have nowhere to go. It's Alaska. Um, but my, my mother would tell my dad whenever I would run off and run away. And what my father would do was he would go looking for me and go looking for my car. And obviously I had no idea, right? I would just go and do my thing, hang with my friends and whatever. But my dad would be, be looking out to see where I am. And he would update my mom, tell my mom, oh yeah, he's here at this person's house. Oh, he's over there. Like, don't worry about it, he'll be fine. 
I had no idea and I did not realize that yes, as I went off and did my shameful things, as I went off and lived a life for myself, that, that of course they're worried about me. But they were looking out for me. They were seeking me and intentionally pursuing me. And, and this love that my parents were showing me when I didn't even realize it and when I wasn't even expecting it, my father and my mother were able to extend and pursue me in their love. If our earthly parents can love us so much as like this, how much more can our Heavenly Father love us? This is why I love this story. Right? This is why I love looking at, at the Father and, and how, yes, the Father was so worried, and, but this, this ideal of the Father's love being extended to the Son. It's such a beautiful picture. Now, the second shameful stage, uh, before I get too carried away with sharing my story, uh, is the shameless reconciliation. You see, action speaks louder than words, as they say. And so Jesus describes the father as a man of his words. Look at verse 22. It says, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You see, the father now takes the time to give physical evidence of um, this process of reconciliation. The process of receiving the son back uh, is now complete. You see, by giving this son who is once shamed and dishonored the father, the very opposite of what he should have received would have been very easily a shocking uh, news for the, the people that were listening. So first of all, the robe, and this is not just any ordinary robe. This is the best robe, right? And the best robe that a family would have was usually reserved and used for people that would lead out in the family and uh, for special occasions uh, and celebrations. So typically the older son would receive this, this robe. Now the ring, it wasn't just any ordinary ring. This ring was a special one. It's a ring that had the family crest on it. And it was used as like a signature for, for documents and for documentations, right? But so basically what the father is doing by giving him the ring is giving the son the privileges, the rights and the authority as a part of the family back, even though he had squandered it off in worldly living. Now, sandals, which were typically not worn by servants, uh, the sandals were a sign that the son wasn't going to be a servant. But now the son would be back to his original status as the son. Now, especially when it comes to the, the robe and the ring, like this is stuff that was reserved specifically for the older son. Yet the father takes this and gives it to the younger son. And just like the younger son, who came back to the father empty-handed, with absolutely nothing to give, received more than he could ever imagine. When we look at this father that Jesus paints in the parable, we find a very shameless reconciliation with the son. The father, without any hesitation, regardless of the stares and the, the judgment that he would have received, chooses to accept the son back and proves it through his actions. Now, the third and the final stage of the father, of the shameful stage of the father, is the shameless rejoicing. Reading verse 23 and 24, it says this, And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. 
Now, as we know, this was where we find this celebration party in which the older son hears from a distance as he's working in the field. Once again, this fatted calf was typically safe for events uh, that held high significance, um, uh, like most notably events like the older son uh, having a wedding or the visit of a high village official or someone of high importance. You see, the eating of the fatted calf signified how important the son was to the father, the value. Because you see, this fatted calf would have been enough to feed around like a few hundred people. Okay? So this wasn't a celebration that was only reserved for the people in the family. This was a full-out celebration for the village, for everyone in this community. You see, in the contrast to these other parables of the lost, we see, you know, shepherd finds the lost sheep, the woman finds this inanimate object, this coin, and then celebrates with her friends, right? But in the prodigal son, we find something a little different, right? We find that the son, or the father was, has found his son, who is once dead, is alive again, who was once lost, but is now found is taking this entire village to come and celebrate and be merry. You see, typically we look at this and be like, wow, like, okay, a celebration. We should celebrate when the lost are saved. Amen to that. I think very truly and very rightfully so, and something that we don't do very often, is we do not celebrate when those that are lost are saved, those that have, have lost their way in worldly living, yet have come to found Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. We fail to do this as a church. But I think one thing that we have to realize and understand about this celebration is that it's not only about the lost son that has now been found, but the celebration is also about the Father. Right? When we come and celebrate those that were lost and found, not only do we celebrate the life of the person that was once lost, but we celebrate the Father who saved the lost. You see, it's a combination, this celebration of the lost son who's returned. But more importantly, it's about the love, it's about the forgiveness and the reconciliation that the father gives to the son that is a call for celebration. And even today, how much more of a celebration should we be having when we hear this? How merciful, how gracious and how loving, how forgiving has the father been to us? When we see ourselves as the younger son who was lost and is now found in the father's embrace, or even as the older son, as someone who, who finds himself with no fault, who looks to the things they do as their indicator of how close they are to God. The father extends this, this shameless rejoicing and celebration to come and celebrate the fact that God is a constant God, that God is a God with such merciful, gracious, forgiving characteristics. And you see, church, it doesn't get any better than this. You see, when we look at this parable, there's so much we can take away. But one of the greatest things that we can learn about this parable is this, that this is the character and the nature of who our Heavenly Father is. What we find here is the attitude of God. You see, the, we find the reassurance of a God that approaches sinners with open arms. And even more so, we find a God who is actively searching for you and I. As a God who loves to save the lost, God invites and seeks us to come back home. And we find in this parable a picture that paints this overflowing, overwhelming, never-ending love of God.
You see, some of us may feel ashamed. Some of us may feel that we don't deserve to come back. Some of us may think, you know, I, I don't deserve what God has to offer. I know what God can give me. I know what God can provide, but I, I don't deserve it. But we see here in this parable that God has already prepared to give us everything, regardless of how much we feel we deserve. And what's more special is that somehow, whether we realize it or not, we all have a home in God. We all have a home in the Father. When we feel this shame, when we feel this sense of loss, we have to remember that because we've strayed away due to sin, whether it's the sins of this world or sins of self-righteousness, but whatever that is, that it's taken us away from the place where we were meant to be, the sin. And each of us have this God-shaped hole in our lives. And nothing can fill that up besides God. And God wants to fill that up. God wants to, and He's actively searching for us to do so. You see, church, we live in a time where I strongly believe that Jesus is really coming soon. Jesus is actively calling for us. He's actively seeking for you and me. He's patiently waiting, yet at the same time looking out in the horizon for you and I. But unfortunately, I believe that some of us find ourselves in the pig pen of life. We're just sitting there. We're just trying to eat the pods that the pigs are eating. You see, Jesus is ready to host this huge party for us. And all we have to do is get up and go back home. Maybe many of us are already journeying back. Maybe we're not sitting in the pig pen of life. Maybe we're on this journey walking back to the Father. And that's beautiful because God sees you. And is running out there to embrace you. To take on your shame. Now maybe some of you guys feel like you're already home. Maybe some of you guys are already with the Father. And the Father's blessings have been poured out upon you. But because you've been so caught up in your own self-righteousness. That when you see other people receiving the same things that you've always received. You get you get afraid and defensive and you start to become self-righteous and then you miss the big picture of what God wants to do in saving the lost but don't worry regardless of where you are the beautiful thing is that God constantly and continuously leaves this invitation for you to receive his grace to receive his forgiveness and receive his mercy you see when we all acknowledge and come to this awareness that we are all lost, that we are all broken. You see, Jesus still extends this opportunity for us to really find home. You see, church, as I've shared with you today, as we've looked at the characteristics of the Father, as we understand the attitude of who God is, I pray that we can look to ourselves in the year 2020, and we can say, you know, we are all homesick. We all want to go home. But it first begins with understanding what the Father has in store for you and I. The celebration is about to begin. So are we ready? Are we ready as we've seen all the different characters of this story? As we've seen how the Father has prepared this celebration for you? I pray that this would be a Sabbath. That whatever stage that you may be in, whether you are the lost son, the younger son, the lost older son, or maybe... You're on your journey of your own. Maybe it's not one of the two. Maybe you're in the middle in a transition. I pray that this Sabbath will be a Sabbath for you to come running back to the Father, wherever you may be. Let's pray. <laughs>